The first reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 1 through to 18, and that can be found on page 889 of the Pew Bibles. So, Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honoured as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The second reading this morning will be Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, and that's on page 1,127 of the Church Bible. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. But if you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea at what hour I will come against you. But you have a few people inside us who have not defiled their clothes. And they will walk with me in white, because they are worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. 
Good morning. It's good to see you here. I'm a little bit intimidated. Uh, my name is Andrew. I normally feel far more comfortable sitting where you are sitting. So bear with me this morning as we explore this letter. I'm just going to see if the zapper works. There we go. At 12.51pm on Tuesday the 22nd of February, an earthquake of a magnitude of 6.3 shook the ground. It was 10 kilometres from the city centre of Christchurch. There'd been another one about six months earlier. It had been 7.1, but because of its location, it had caused a lot of damage, but there hadn't been any fatalities. The one on February 2011 only lasted for about 10 seconds, but it was close to the surface and there was a lot of destruction. Within the first week, there were 360 aftershocks. They had over 10,000 in the year that followed. The psychological damage that that must do is significant. John Best last week suggested that he'd asked Paul if he could go to Patmos to do some research for his sermon on Revelation. Um, I wasn't quite so ambitious. I spent three days uh, this week in Christchurch actually touring the damage uh, and earthquake devastation. I'll send my receipts through shortly, Paul. Um, As a result of the earthquake, there were 185 lives lost. There were 220 major traumas and over 6,000 actually injured. There'd be 10,000 houses that need to be demolished that can't be lived in. The CBD is still an absolute mess with uh, block after block having been devastated. It's interesting when you look at the deaths. 115 of them happened in just one building, the Canterbury TV building. A government report later found that, sorry, I'm just trying to flick on. A government report later found that that building should never have been approved. The way in which they'd constructed the concrete, the way in which they'd put it together was flawed. People would have walked in and out of that building day in, day out and been comfortable with the facade. They would have seen it and they would have just believed that it was there, it was functioning and it was fine. But the reality is it wasn't. Its construction was flawed from the start. It had this great facade that inspired confidence, but it was in fact flawed. Jesus, when he spoke to the church in Sardis, was sending a similar message designed to send shockwaves. You have a great facade, but your construction is flawed. The work done is incomplete. Uh, A quick refresher. We are looking at the book of Revelation. John, the author of the Gospel of John, is on the island of Patmos. The the letter to the seven churches is the first of uh, two visions that he has. It's visionary language. It's a kind of poetry. The danger with Revelation is that we seek to rationalise it down to a code. We look at every word in there and we think we've got to explain it and tear it apart. When we get to Revelation, we actually already have all that God is revealing about his salvation plan. 
It's all there. The message of Christ is clear. But it's a book of images and wonders that's there to shock us, to draw us out of our rational world. We do so well here in Sydney at tearing stuff apart and trying to rationally understand it. The book of Revelation is deliberately written in this language to challenge our thought. The apocalyptic language should shock us and challenge us and get us thinking differently. So verse 1, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. It's worth looking at Sardis just quickly to understand what was going on and understand the place it was. Ironically, it had had its own earthquake. It probably happened when Jesus was about 15, probably about somewhere between 60 and 100 years before John actually captured these words. The Roman historian Pliny the Elder called it the greatest earthquake in human memory. The city of Sardis, a formerly splendid city, was basically wiped out. It had been commercially quite prosperous and well-off. It's where the first coins were minted. It had a great woolen and carpet industry. There was plenty, they tell us, shopkeepers and dance people and musicians. They were proud of what they'd been. You can go there and you can see an awesome temple to Artemis. They had a very big gymnasium. Not necessarily fitness first, but they had a big gym. And they had the largest synagogue found in the ancient world. A sermon of a Christian bishop there was on the, on the Passover and it testifies to fighting, not fighting, but spirited, sometimes bitter debate between the Jewish community of the second century. However, as far as we can work out, the problem for the congregation of Sardis in John's time was not the Jews, not the Roman Empire, nor with false prophecy, but solely with itself. So there we have it, a great city, an impressive city, the capital of its area and doing well. The great city of Sydney, I mean Sardis. Life is good. Church appears to be going really well. They have a big gym. Clearly everyone was into health, well-being and vitality probably even special diets, maybe even work-life balance. And amongst that come Jesus' words. I see your community lunches, your carols under the bridge. Your music is great. Your updated church building has a really comfortable, historical, modern feel about it. Even your veneer panelling has grown on me. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are. Jesus' words to Sardis were damning. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. John told us last week, John Best that is, not John the Apostle, that the letters to the churches follow a common theme. You have praise, you have rebuke, You have a call to repent and you have a promise. The exception is the letter to Sardis. There's no praise. You have this great facade. People looking in think you're doing the right thing and even think you're impressive. But your construction is flawed. It is incomplete. The interesting thing about it is how Sardis would have received this. 
because she wasn't what people would have called a dead church. They would have looked at the flourishing activities. They would have looked at what was going on in that environment and the conclusion of anyone looking in would have been quite different. She herself would have been most shocked by these words from Jesus. She was not aware of her real spiritual state. All regarded her as a flourishing, active, successful church, all except Christ. Her works do not in fact measure up to the standard he expected. Not one of them has really been completed. If Jesus was writing to us at Church by the Bridge, what would he be saying? Verse 2, I have not found your works complete before my God. Secure and complacent like the city in which she lived, untroubled by persecution or heresy, the church had set herself the task of avoiding hardship by pursuing a life based on convenience and reputation rather than wholehearted zeal. We don't know what complete looks like and why Jesus said their works were complete, incomplete rather. But we can get from other parts of scripture a small insight into where completion or how completion is achieved. Philippians 1 verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Where's completion achieved? Completion is achieved through the work of Jesus. It's not achieved through the outward works of a church who thinks they're doing all the right things, who has impressive programs. So where were they at? Verse 4 tells us what the result was. The majority of them had defiled their clothes and had soiled them. Clean white clothing in the book of Revelation is a symbol of religious and moral purity especially in the face of persecution. White, sorry, while soiled or dishevelled clothing or no clothing at all is a symbol of religious or moral impurity. It's likely that the problem at Sardis was a strong tendency to compromise Christian faith for the sake of conformity to the community. Sound familiar? It's not the first time in the Bible that a group who think they've got, got it all together have heard that it hasn't been the case. Turn with me to Corinthians, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been just come out of the end of a whole series on Exodus. This passage actually summarises that nicely for us. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Same message again, isn't it? 
We've got a God who isn't hung up on whether you're sitting here in church and helping out at the community lunches, enjoying cups of coffee with our minister, telling him about all the great things you've done. What happened? These people became idolaters. They sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not test Christ as some of them did, nor should we complain. Verse 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Go to our first reading today in Matthew. Again, don't stand there saying all the right things, making all the right sounds. We see in that passage, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. The message we get is clear. We've got a God who is not interested in the outward stuff, the outward show. He's interested in our hearts. It's been a bit tough as an Australian sport fan over the last little while. We've watched our Wallabies disappoint us. The English have even had a better summer than us, but then the moment we look like winning, it rains. Our tennis players have let us down, and again, what's even worse is it's been an Englishman that succeeded. And then we watch the Tour de France and we feel disappointed as well. So we sit around our dining room tables and we talk about the performance of our Australian teams. We sit around the coffee machines, we walk around the scooter parks and we pass judgment. But actually, we don't talk about the teams, we break it down and we end up talking about the individuals. Because what we realise is that while we can say Australia's not doing well at rah, 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 we realise that the performance of the team the performance of the church is actually a sum of its individuals. It's easy to sit and point at certain churches and talk about what we think they're doing right or doing wrong. But in the end, it comes down to the individuals. It comes down to you and it comes down to me. Because when Jesus spoke to the church in Sardis, yes, he spoke to the body, but he distinguished between those that sold their clothes and those that hadn't. And so as we look at what it means to be a church that's either alive or dead, we actually have to flick it around and the mirror needs to be on each of us as we think about where we're actually at because you and me make up the body of Christ here. It's easy to see what death looks like. We saw it in that passage in Corinthians where we saw how God had wiped people out who had moved away from him who thought they were doing the right things. So what does life actually look like? What does an alive church look like? What can we test it against? One of the things I do in my work day to day is help organisations think through how they're creating their revenue, how they're marketing and selling. And one of the first things we do is we sit with them and we say, well, what's the data say about how you're performing? And what do you actually think about how you're performing? So I thought I'd do the same with us this morning, a bit of a health check. How are we actually performing? What I've left out of it is the outward stuff because we know that Sardis actually had a reputation for getting the outward stuff right. So there doesn't seem to be any point in counting the number of external activities we have uh, and all the things that we're doing that others see. But what seems to be important 
is to get a glance inside at how we're going as individuals. Romans 10 says, So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message. How are we going at being in a live church? A number of us completed the church life survey a year or two ago. What I've managed to get hold of is the report for this church. This is what we said about ourselves. 45% much growth, 42% some growth, 13% of us no growth. If we're going to be growing, let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another. How are we going with our private devotional activity? 33% of us have private devotional activity once a week or less. The relationship between our heart and our wallets is well documented, but not seen by everyone else. How are we going at our giving? If I asked you to shut your eyes and put your head down with no one else seeing and said, put your hand up if you tithe, I'm sure a lot of us would put our hands up. Here's our stats. 20% of us actually give 10% or more of our income. How important is God to you? Church by the bridge. 22% said, God's more important to me than almost anything else. 5% of us were brutally honest. Fairly important, but many other things are more important. And a live church will be growing in depth of faith, which I think some of these things start to bear out, but also hopefully growing in number as we take the Great Commission seriously. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've grown well in number here. Uh, This is an interesting statistic. Over the last five years, where has the growth come from? 69% has been transfer growth. 22% of us were already here, or we've reproduced. It's been a bit of that. Uh, 9% have come from those who five years ago weren't attending any church at all. What's interesting... I like this next one because you can say all this stuff about the Bible and growth and it's all good and you need to do it to grow. This one starts to put it together. For those who actually said they experienced much growth, they were far more likely to have invited someone to church, far more likely to be giving 10% of their income and far more likely to be at ease looking for opportunities to talk about faith. Here's a correlation between church growth and personal devotional time. Does it make a difference? Does all this Bible reading stuff actually make a difference? Or is it just something that's easy for someone to stand up here and tell you you should be doing? Daily Bible devotional. There's the growth line across the middle there. Anglicans seem to be falling below the zero. Baptist Church of Christ just above. Pentecostals out there. Gee, we love to throw stones at them. 72% roughly 
daily devotions and growth up there above 20%. We can feel a bit better about ourselves here in Sydney because this is the Anglican diocese around the whole of the country. So we can sit back and go, oh, it's probably not us. We'd really be up there somewhere and look at our numbers. So relax and pat yourself on the back. But what I love about it is just that straight correlation. Are you in the word? Are you growing? Are you alive? What's actually going on? Each one of those percentages, uh, there's one more there. Here's another quiet one is uh, how are we actually going at caring for those in need? These are some of the informal ways that we helped. Each one of those percentages is you and me. So we could have done our own personal health check there. And let's not get too carried away. Data can be misused. It can be misread. It can be, you could have interpreted a question one way or another. So I'm not trying to hang the whole thing on it there. But I think there's a bit of a wake-up call for us in there. Let's also not be fake with each other. Those, those stats are us. What I think we're really good at is what is referred to as the car park miracle. It's that moment where you've picked that screaming kid up off the floor. You've ended that slightly tough conversation with the person you've come to church with. You've taken a deep breath and you've walked in that front door and you've greeted someone with just that calm, pleasant, holy voice. Um, We're good at it. We're good at making sure when we walk into here, we've got it all right. But the reality is some of us have marriages that are hard work or are struggling. Some of us hate what we do day by day and feel a lack of purpose and drive. Some of us struggle to read the Bible any day, let alone every day. Some of us feel a deep sense of loneliness. Some of us lead extravagant lives and fail to give anything like the amounts we should. And so on and so on. At the same time, some of us have such a love of God that you crave the word every day and you love opening it. Others have marriages that are on fire and children that are angels. Didn't realize that was possible. You can't help but share your faith day in, day out. You cook a meal for someone who's in need at the drop of a hat. There are some great things happening in this place. But let's not pretend we've all got it together. God sees our hearts. Despite the strong language of death in this passage, there is real hope. It's not the final siren, it's actually a wake-up call. There are some who haven't defiled their clothes, end of verse 4, and they will walk with me, Jesus says in white, because they are worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Hopefully the majority of us are in this category. Don't be confused between struggling with aspects of your faith and having a faith that for all intents and purposes is dead. Just because you are struggling to read your Bible doesn't mean that Christ hasn't completed the work in you. So don't hear that out of it all. 
A true sporting champion claims the prize because he suffered through the training and the event and ultimately made it to the end. The drug cheat has all the same external signs of success, but on the inside is rotten. Like Sardis, he might even have convinced himself he's a legitimate player. Many of us will have a faith that is well and truly alive and your name is in the book of life. But understand the work that is being begun in you will be completed by God, not through your own outward signs and actions. There are those, though, who once heard the message and are currently faking it, either intentionally or unintentionally. They have the outward appearance of having it all together, but God sees their hearts. What does the passage tell us to do? It tells us three things. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Romans 10, so faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message about Jesus Christ. We need to remember and hold on to the good news that Jesus has come and he has died and he has paid the price for us. It is not the outward facade. It is not the outward show that we need to put on for others. It is what God has done through his son. We need to keep it. Our faith isn't something we pick up on a Sunday because it suits us. Our faith is something that we need to walk with and hold on to. It needs to be a reality day in, day out. Our faith needs to be central. And we need to repent. The deeds that men see do not fool God who sees the heart. And it's the heart that God cares about. Repentance is about turning around and living differently. If Christ alone can see and expose the plights of Sardis, certainly he alone is ready to deal with it. He is the one who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, and when he brings together the stars, who are the angelic representatives of the churches, and the sevenfold spirit, there will be a result. The seven spirits are the eyes of God from whom nothing is hidden. Hence the message of severity that we've just heard. But they are also the life-giving power of God. If Sardis remembers and repents, God will forgive and God will draw them back to himself. So where do you sit on it all? Are you part of the life in this church? Or are you one of those who is dying? Our passage says, But if you are not alert, I will come like an earthquake, and you will have no idea at what hour I will come against you. As we toured Christchurch, we stopped out the front of two houses that were being rebuilt. They weren't all that impressive to look at at this stage. And what was explained to us was the amount of time and effort that was being put into building the foundations. Here was this massive amount of work that was going into a part that would never be seen, that needed to be dug deeper than ever before to make sure that there was a true foundation on which the new buildings could take shape. So they were more than just a facade. They were more than just this outward show that would potentially crumble and fall under pressure. The investment was significant, but will be worth it for the result.
Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We have a God who's not impressed by our outward shows, but sees our hearts. Let's support each other. Let's be real with each other about where we're at and where we're traveling. Let's remember what we have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Because the promise is good. The promise is Jesus acknowledging us before his Father and him completing the work in us that our efforts can never complete. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you see us as a church and you see us as individuals. We thank you, Lord, that you see our hearts. Lord, we struggle day in, day out with our faith, but we thank you that it is you that completes the work in us, that makes our work complete. We ask, Lord, that through your spirit, you would strengthen us to live as you want us to live. And that, Lord, we wouldn't be guilty of impressive facades, but no substance. Help us to support each other, to love one one another. And, Lord, to be your church here in Kirribilli. Amen.